listening to The Common Faith Podcast. The topic is always Christianity and the things we should believe in common. Welcome to the program. I'm Barry. Thank you for joining me today and choosing to spend your time listening. I deeply appreciate that. Today's topic is salvation. I believe there exists numerous people who consider themselves Christians, but they don't necessarily believe in salvation, at least in the biblical sense. I also think that salvation is something we should all believe in common. What is salvation? In its simplest form, salvation is all about being saved from something bad. But it's got to be really bad. It can't be something trivial like, I'm walking down a sidewalk and it's autumn and the leaves are falling from the trees and a leaves about to land on me and my buddy shoves me out of the way so I don't get hit by a leaf. We would not say that he saved me. That's not a salvation. The point is, is that salvation is a word that's used when you are saved from something that is really bad. And in the scriptures, I see two kinds of salvation. The first kind is from physical things like an invading army or sickness. And that salvation is temporary because you might be saved from an invasion one year, and then a century later, you may be overthrown. You may be saved from a sickness today, but in a few years, you might get sick and die. They're temporary salvations. But I also see in Scripture another kind of salvation, a permanent or an eternal one. And this is from a much bigger menace, much bigger than an army or a sickness. And that's the kind that I want to focus on today. What is eternal salvation? Whatever it is, it has to last forever. Otherwise, we couldn't call it eternal. There also has to be a bad guy in this story, a very serious menace that we're being saved from. Without both of those things, we can't really call it eternal salvation, can we? Let's start with the menace. What are we being saved from? Messiah Jesus clearly taught that there exists a literal, eternal punishment for those who are disloyal and in rebellion to their Creator. He referred to it on numerous occasions and in a number of different ways. On one occasion, he called it the outer darkness and said that in that place there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. On another occasion, he spoke of his return to the earth and the judgment of the people. He said that they would be separated into two groups. The first group inherits a kingdom, but to the second group he says, quote, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, unquote. This is not the only time he spoke of a punishing fire to come. On another occasion, he taught that if there's a part of your body that causes you to sin, it would be better for you to cut it off and go through life disabled than to be thrown into the, quote, eternal fire. Do you remember his famous, I am the vine and you are the branches speech? If you do, do you remember the end of it? He started out by telling us that we are like branches on a vine. And if we stay attached to him, then we will be fruitful. But then he went on to say that those branches that aren't productive would be cut off, 
gathered up and thrown into the fire, just as a real vine dresser does to real grapevines. It's no wonder that we don't memorize the second half of that story. It's not only uncomfortable, it's disturbing. Actually, all of it, all of this eternal punishment stuff is disturbing. Can you imagine being caught roasting in a fire for all eternity? That's absolutely horrific. Can this even possibly be true? I'll be completely transparent here. There's a part of me that hopes to God that it isn't. Can you imagine yourself there? Or if you're feeling particularly safe, can you imagine your friends and family, people you love and care about? It's terrifying. I think this is why so many Christians don't believe in it. The problem is, without a terrible and eternal menace, how can there also exist a wonderful and eternal salvation? You can't have the one without the other. If hell doesn't exist, then what are we being saved from? This is also why I say that there are numerous Christians who don't believe in salvation, because they don't believe in the existence of hell. If eternal punishment doesn't exist, then what do we make of Jesus who warned us about it? Was he lying? Exaggerating? Was he insane? We're in a difficult position. We either have to take Jesus at his word, which means accepting the reality of this eternal horror, or we've got to change the way we look at Jesus. Maybe he's not who we think he is. Keep in mind, the scriptures teach us that all things were created through him, which means that even this torture machine was also created by Jesus. How badly does that twist our view of him? In this case, like so many others, Jesus is putting the pressure on us to make some really hard choices. And personally, I love him for that. That's what he does. He puts me in tough positions where I have to make really difficult choices. Do we believe in justice? If so, then we also have to believe in punishment and that it's good and right for people who are guilty to suffer for their crimes. Maybe the problem is that we don't really believe in justice. We just kind of believe in it. And especially in the spiritual realm, because that's not where we're hanging out. In our physical realm, injustice or partial justice are so common that maybe we've become numb or immune to it. Sometimes I wonder if we think that God is immune if he's okay with the condition of the world because we don't really see him acting out against it. The Bible describes him as long-suffering, and unfortunately it could be that his long-suffering nature has given us this impression. Maybe the truth instead is that God is painstakingly waiting for disloyal humans to come home like the prodigal son. It could also be true that while his compassionate side is patiently waiting, his justice side is filling with wrath over the injustice in the world. In the book of Revelation, it's described as a wine press, which is where we get the idea of the grapes of wrath. Well, guess who treads on those grapes? It's not the culturally trendy and acceptable Jesus that our American church culture has created. It's the real Messiah, the one whose robe is dipped in blood and whose thigh bears the brand, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. Is God just? Yes, He is. He can't let those crimes go unpunished, otherwise He Himself will become unjust. As a result, 
humanity is facing a very real and eternal threat. Fortunately for us, God is not only just, but He's also the very definition of love. And so He has graciously planned and provided a way of escape for us. This is what I think of when I see or hear the phrase eternal salvation. It's deliverance from the wrath and fire to come. Do I need eternal salvation? Our culture has planted in us this idea that heaven is a place for good people and hell is a place for evil people. Since most of us see ourselves as good people, it only makes sense that most of us feel pretty comfortable with God's justice. Surely, I'm not as bad as that guy over there. God will punish him, but he's not going to punish me because, compared to him, I'm pretty good. There's a phrase to describe that kind of mindset. It's self-righteous. We're self-righteous because we believe that we're right before God due to our own virtue. We are literally self-right. Besides, what is the standard we're using to judge ourselves as good? Isn't it a human standard? Comparing ourselves to the people around us, grading ourselves on a curve? Is that going to stand up in the court of a judge who is perfectly holy? He created us in holiness, and we have fallen from that high position to the condition we find ourselves in now. Corruption. No, we're not good. Even Jesus rebuffed the designation when a guy addressed him as, quote, good teacher. Didn't Messiah reply to him saying, only God is good? It seems to me that we need to come to terms with two very difficult truths. The first is that our sin, our sin, has caused a separation between us and God. This is Isaiah chapter 59 stuff. The second difficult truth is that the separation our sin has created is slowly killing us. The writer of Romans captures this really well in the fifth chapter. Quote, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Death spread. Spread is an interesting choice of words. Sounds like a disease, doesn't it? Maybe that's because it is a disease. A deadly disease that we're all infected with. And doesn't that make sense given our separation? Our Creator is the source of all life. If we're separated from the source of life, then aren't we slowly suffocating until we are overcome by death? Do we need salvation? Let me make it personal. Do you need salvation? If death has a grip on you, then yes, you betcha. What are the spiritual mechanics of eternal salvation? The primary problem is sin. Sin is what caused a separation between us and God, and sin is what causes death. Both death to our mortal bodies and eternal death, which according to the scriptures, is the lake of fire. Something has to be done to remove the sin or we're all going to perish. The key word there is remove, not just atone for it. What is atonement? Atonement was the treatment for sin up until the arrival of Messiah. Notice that I didn't use the word cure. It was simply a temporary treatment. Atonement is like a band-aid over a wound. It covers it up, but it doesn't remove the wound. We see this in the life of Abraham. 
It's written that he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Okay. His sin was covered, but was it removed? I argue no. Because if it was, then he wouldn't need Messiah. We also see atonement in the lives of the Israelites living under the law of Moses. Once a year, the high priest would offer a sacrifice on behalf of the nation, but he had to do this annually on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The atonement sacrifice was just a temporary cover-up. It didn't really deal with the sin problem. It didn't remove it. If it did, then Israel, like Abraham, wouldn't need their Messiah. They also wouldn't need to offer the atonement sacrifice year after year, forever and ever. How do I know that sacrificing animals doesn't remove sin? Hebrews chapter 10. We're taught, quote, It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, unquote. This means that the animal sacrifices throughout all history did absolutely nothing to remove the sin. They were just a temporary cover-up so people could get by. This leads us to the question, so people could get by until what or when? Well, when the real sacrifice showed up. God sent his son into the world to take responsibility for our sin and remove it by suffering the penalty for us. That is death. This is Isaiah 53 territory. And it's also why Jesus is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The scriptures teach that our collective sins as the human race were laid upon him and imply that when he died, our sin died with him. It's incredible, but God, quote, made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, unquote. How did that happen? I have no clue. It's a huge spiritual mystery that's above my pay grade. All I know is that when the Son of God was offered as a sacrifice for our sin, the penalty for our rebellion was paid in full, and the sin issue was removed from the equation forever. Removed. Our sin is no longer the problem. It's no longer an insurmountable gap between us and our Creator. Okay, well, if that's true, then why isn't everyone saved? If sin has been removed, shouldn't everyone go to heaven? This leads us to the classic question, What must I do to be saved? Salvation is a gift that's given through Messiah Jesus. We can't earn it. We simply receive it from Him by faith. This is why if we reject Him, then we reject the gift of salvation. He said that He is the doorway to the Father. Quote, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Unquote. John the Apostle put it this way, The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who refuses to believe in the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. The bottom line is that we cannot have the Father if we reject the Son. It's not about our particular religion or our level of goodness. It's about receiving the free gift through faith. Jesus said, Repent and believe. What does it mean to believe in the Son? Well, it's not an intellectual assent, as in, I think Jesus existed, I might even think that he was a good guy who was wrongfully murdered. 
Believing in Jesus is the entire messianic package. It means that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He came from God and was born as a human, and He lived a sinless life so He could be the perfect necessary sacrifice. Do we believe that God raised Him from the dead and glorified Him and took Him up into heaven and bestowed upon Him a name that is above all names, and that all power and authority and rule are His? In short, do we believe that Jesus is the Messiah? That's what it means to believe in the Son. And to believe means having real faith. It's a deep conviction of the heart, not an intellectual acceptance. It's a hard thing to describe. Personally, during my journey to Messiah, as I read the scriptures, I could feel faith growing inside of me until I got to the point where what I knew in my heart to be true outweighed and eclipsed whatever I doubted with my mind. So, all we need to do is believe that Jesus is the Messiah, right? Not exactly. Jesus said, quote, Repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, unquote. He also said on another occasion, Repent and believe. So apparently we need to repent as well as believe in him as Messiah. But what is repentance? Repentance is basically a change of heart and mind. It's a radical change in the direction of your life. And it's also a gift that comes from God. It causes a person to turn away from the things that are in opposition to God so they can begin to properly represent their Creator and His kingdom. This means turning away from a lifestyle of rebellion and embracing a lifestyle of godliness. This is why the writer of Hebrews wrote that Jesus, quote, became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So, repentance means that we have rejected a lifestyle of disloyalty to our Creator and that we've embraced a lifestyle of loyalty and faith. Repentance and belief. Repent and believe. How do we know if we have true repentance? Jesus taught that one of the two greatest commandments was to love God with your entire being. He also said that if we truly love Him, then we would obey Him. There is no such thing as a salvation without repentance, and there is no such thing as a true repentance without a change in behavior, from disobedience to obedience, from disloyalty to loyalty. Am I saying that people are saved by what they do? That they are saved by their own behavior? Not at all. All I'm doing is agreeing with James, who said that faith is worthless, that it's as good as dead if you don't have good behavior. Why is that? Well, I told you that salvation is the gift of God, and that you need to repent in order to access it. I also told you that even repentance is a gift from God. When we have repentance, God does a miracle on the inside of us in accordance with the New Covenant prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 31. He takes out our old hard heart and gives us a God-loving and compliant heart, a heart that has His laws written on it. When that happens, it becomes natural to obey God and live righteously, and it becomes unnatural to sin. When we do sin, we feel strong conviction because He's placed His Spirit inside of us and is disciplining us as any good father would do. 
I think that one of the most dangerous conditions for a human being to be in is to be in a place where we can easily sin and feel no conviction over it. That condition is deadly. It's like a teenager who is in complete rebellion and has lost the ability to listen to their parents. If we want to boil all of this down and make it super simple, we could say that salvation is basically a function of loyalty. Because the big picture question is, what team are you playing for? You are either on God's side, in serving God in a way that is pleasing to Him, or you are in rebellion to Him, either aggressively or passively. It doesn't really matter. Rebellion is rebellion, and loyalty is loyalty. Abraham was saved not because he was perfect, because he wasn't. Abraham was saved because he believed and he was loyal to God. The entire nation of Israel was chosen by God, so as a group we could call them the elect. But only some of them were saved, those who believed and were loyal to God. This leads us to the final question. Can a person be disloyal yet still be saved? I guess the first thing we need to do is discuss the level of disloyalty. We all sin in word, thought, deed. Some of us more than others, but we all still sin. Some of us are struggling with various addictions and quite literally are ensnared by the devil by way of those addictions. Does that make us disloyal because we're addicted? Personally, there has been no lack of sinning over the course of my life. That's my confession. I sinned before my conversion to Christianity, I've sinned since, and I'm pretty sure I will commit more sins. Does that make me disloyal, or does it just make me a work in progress? Holy Spirit has been an excellent teacher to me. He's been so patient and long-suffering with me over the course of my life. His grace has been immeasurable, and I'm deeply thankful for that. It truly breaks my heart that I stumble, and I know that I can never repay Jesus for dying for my sins. But I do want to live in such a way that I honor His sacrifice and not take it for granted. Perhaps that's the difference. Maybe it's not so much the quantity of sin that makes us disloyal, but the condition of the heart. There exist some Christians who seem to be more focused on what they can get away with what the bare minimum of godliness is that they need to maintain in order to continue in the grace of God. These people seem to enjoy blurring the lines between godliness and ungodliness, and they feel as though they are immune from consequence because of the grace and mercy of God. Can you imagine that in a marriage? What if I had a spouse that loved to flirt outside of the marriage and kept pushing the boundaries outward further and further to see what I would tolerate? What if I was loving and patient with her, but instead of responding to my kindness and long-suffering, they took it as encouragement to keep pushing outward until they finally started sleeping with other people? Would we say that my spouse believed in our marriage? Would we say that they were loyal to me? Let's consider a different marriage, and this time my spouse has a weakness in the area of visual lust. Let's say that on occasion, I catch them checking out somebody else's body, but when they catch eyes with me, I can see that they feel shame for their weakness, 
and they are contrite and mournful that they're being unfaithful with their eyes. Is this person disloyal, or are they just a work in progress, a person suffering from a weakness? Obviously, there is a world of difference between these two situations, and why I believe that we can't measure disloyalty by the raw amount of sin. We have to consider the heart, and only God is in a position to judge that rightly. My last thought on this is that I'm convinced that salvation in the kingdom of God is not a prison, that I can leave it if I want to. The choice to believe and be loyal can just as easily be changed to a choice to be disloyal. It's written that we have our entrance into this salvation, this grace, by faith. I think it's reasonable that we can also have our exit by unbelief. Maybe this is why the following is written in Hebrews chapter 6, quote, It is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, became companions with the Holy Spirit, tasted God's good word in the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away. Unquote. It is impossible to renew them to repentance. Why? The writer continues, quote, Because to their own harm, they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding Him up to contempt. For ground that has drunk the rain that has often fallen on it, and that produces vegetation useful to those it is cultivated for, receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed, and will be burned at the end. Unquote. Jesus is the vine, we are the branches. The person who remains in him produces much fruit, because he is the source of all life. Salvation God has graciously provided a way of escape from the punishment we deserve for our rebellion. Amnesty for the repentant is His gift to humanity, but it's not a prison. Thank you for listening.